I changed the title again. Sorry. Um, you can turn to Micah, Micah chapter 7. Uh, this is the end of the book. Uh, we're reached the end so quickly because for the first two sermons in this series, I foolishly tried to do two chapters at once, which resulted in a 50-minute sermon one time. So I, I stopped trying to do that. But we're done. That's why we're done so fast. I think we'll do Romans starting next week. Um, but for now, Micah chapter 7. Um, if you've read the book of Habakkuk, it's hidden in the Minor Prophets. Minor prophets have never been as popular, never gotten all the press that Isaiah and all the other, other guys have. But in the book of Habakkuk, it's only three chapters long. I've always thought it was the most realistic thing ever, that at the beginning of the book, Habakkuk is, says, you know, God, things are just awful. You know, there's injustice everywhere. Life is terrible. People don't care about you. When are you going to come and fix things? And then God responds. The Habakkuk is he speaks and God responds. So it's like this, almost like a play. And so God responds and he says, that's a great idea. In fact, I'm going to bring the Babylonians in to just tear everything apart. And they're the worst people who've ever lived. So just wait and you'll get your wish. And Habakkuk responds by saying, whoa, I didn't mean that way. Like, I didn't, I didn't want you to really, you know, do that. Let's fix it the nice way. Right. I don't let's let's not get too hasty here. And he's filled with horror because imagine you know, the, the the worst, the worst country on Earth invading and destroying everything in its path. And God says, that's how I'm going to fix everything that's wrong with this country. And Habakkuk responds with, I could have done without knowing all of that. You know, there's probably like an intermediate step we can do that will take care of it just fine. And he's filled with just horror. And here in Micah chapter seven, He's filled with the same feeling of dread at the beginning of the chapter as it opens. And so this uh, chapter helps answer the question, how can we trust God when things are just awful? How can we trust God when things are just awful? So when you go through difficult times, no matter who you are, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, um, you have two choices. You can either rely on yourself to sort of power through, to overcome because you're just better or faster, smarter, or, or whatever. So you can rely on yourself um, to get through. Or you can look somewhere outside yourself for support. You can look to a process, to a system, to an organization, to a religion, hopefully to the one true religion uh, by the one true God, Yahweh. And how does this, if you're looking for, if you look outside yourself, which is what the Christian story says you need to do, if you look outside yourself for deliverance, for rescue out of the bad situation, because you realize you can't get out yourself, how does deliverance come? Does it come in one blinding, flashing um, event where things are terrible, but now they're great, like a movie, you know, in two hours, it's all resolved and everything's great, uh, where our comfort is the goal? Maybe we wouldn't say that, but things are fixed, but in a way that's not that arduous for us. That was Habakkuk's thing. It's a normal reaction. I don't want it fixed that way. It's a little too harsh. I mean, let's let's fix it, but you know, keep let's not rip everything up in the process. Let's be reasonable here. Is that how God fixes things? Or does he fix it some other way that involves a little bit of um or maybe a lot of um uh struggle? Um is it true that through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of God? I guess I'm asking. 
Um, Micah chapter 7 helps us answer that question. It's a real chapter because it's written by a real guy who really is upset at the news of doom that he's just received at the end of chapter 6. So here we are in Micah chapter 7. Um, we're going to go through the text. Most of it I'm going to talk about. There, there's, there's two levels to reading the prophets. The immediate level and then the level, um, now that we know the whole story and what Christ has done, reading it through that lens. So we're going to go through the text, and then I'm going to talk about what it means at the, um, at the end. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll dive into Micah chapter 7. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to learn from your word. Help us to see Christ. Help us to see the whole story centered on Christ as we read what Micah says. Help us to feel his fears as real things, not just things from a book. Help us to uh, cling to the hope that he has as our hope as well as we deal with the real problems of our life in our context in 2023. And apply your word to our heart and comfort us as necessary by your spirit as we read this chapter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He starts, Micah starts, uh, and he's very upset, which is why I mentioned Habakkuk. He's really upset. So in verses 1 and 2, he says, you know, I'm like, he says, what misery is mine? Like, woe is me. Or basically, you know, if you wanted to translate, you'd say, that this really sucks, right? Chapter 6 ended with this long promise of judgment and destruction because of the community doesn't love God at all and just pretends. And so he doesn't want to hear that, just like Habakkuk didn't want to hear it. So he says, what misery is mine? Why is he so upset? Because when you're told that your entire nation is going to be destroyed by an evil, ruthless enemy as punishment for you know, the nation's sins, that's not good news. You're depressed, you're upset, you're scared for yourself. What about yourself, your family, your home, your, your cat, all this stuff that, that makes up your life. It's all going to be incinerated. What are you going to do? What's going to happen? Look at what's happened in Ukraine the last 18 or so months. Uh, life has totally changed. People's lives have been ruined. Many people have died. Um, awful things. So he's upset. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. If you've read Ruth, gleaning means you come up after that. You come around to the field after the harvesters have come, and you can pick up the scraps that are left. He's like, I'm a guy left with scraps. You promise me this hope way in the future, but in me, but in the meantime, you say everything's going to literally go to hell, and that's that's not fun to hear. I'm like the guy who's left with these scraps of hope in the in the vineyard, and uh, he's worried. You know, he's not supposed to be worried, but he's because you're supposed to trust God, which is good advice, but he's worried. He's upset. He says, there's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. This is poetry. Talking about this, like this agricultural phenomenon. You know, I've come and there's just scraps here. There's nothing for me here. All the promises you've given me, yeah, they're nice, but, you know, they're far away. So what's that leave me with right now? He says, um, he talks about how evil things are how bad things are. He doesn't have much hope. The faithful, verse 2, have been swept away from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. So he pictures people in Israel as basically just a bunch of mercenary psychos running around. No one cares about each other. There's no brotherly love. There's no Deuteronomy 6, love, uh, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might. That's just, you know, that's something on, you know, that's something pasted to the wall in their house, but doesn't mean anything. You know, like the person with the bumper sticker that says, I love God, and they just cut everybody off and everything. Um, 
And so he's, he's upset. In verse 3, he talks about how bad things are in society. He says, he mentions three groups of people. It's on the screen, or you can just look at verse 3. Um, that symbolize this corruption that's just marrow deep. Everything's so bad. It's like, you know, the only way to start over is just to wipe it all out and just start, start fresh. Have you ever had a project or something where it's, all, it's so messed up, you, just, you have to start over? The ruler and the judge and the powerful, and they're all totally messed up. The ruler symbolizing, you know, like the executive branch, all the cabinet secretaries that run all the, all, all the departments, you know, the ruler, that's all messed, they're all messed up. The, ju the judiciary, the judge, the judges are all messed up. Uh, the powerful, like the elites, the, you know, like the high society people, the the, the establishment, all those people, they're all corrupt too. So everything's corrupt. Every single thing that, that, like the engines of any culture, they're all corrupt and they're all ruined. And then he says this, which is the, the key theme for what I'm going to come back to at the end. He says, even the best of them, the best of you know, the, the, the executive branch, the judiciary, and all the you know, cultural elites and the influencers and all those guys, even the best of them, they're all like a briar like a hedgerow. He says, they, um, uh, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. Have you ever had to like tackle like a blackberry bush or a rose bush like that, that, that you think might actually be from hell? You know, there's thorns everywhere. He's talking about a hedgerow of thorny bushes. He says, the best of them is that. That's, that's the best we got, like this thorny hedgerow. What does a hedgerow do? It obstructs a path it makes a path and demarks boundaries. So if you're like on a path with a hedgerow on each side, you're not really, you have no choice but to follow the path unless you want to slice yourself to ribbons trying to get through the, the hedgerow. The, the hedgerow, the briar, the hedge, they, they funnel you toward a destination. So these guys are all like hedgerows funneling the nation toward a sewer, basically. So what do you have to do if your current path is hedging you in, forcing everything toward this awful point that no one really wants to go to? You're going to have to break out of the hedge. Hence my funny title of the, the sermon, Breaking Through to the Other Side. You're going to have to break out of the hedge. Or you're just going to keep going down the path, and then that's going to end wherever it's going to end, which, which, ain't, a, which ain't a good place. Um, you have to get out into the open so you can get on the right path and get out of this, this rut that you're being funneled into. That's what God is doing with this judgment that he keeps promising on the, on the kingdom. He's going to break through the hedges. He's going to crush all the bushes, the executive, the judiciary, the cultural elites. He's going to rip up everything so he can start over again. So God can start over again. So at the end of verse 4, he says, The day God visits you has come. He's preaching to everyone. The day is here. Judgment's coming. There's no way to escape it. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. And so he says this in verses 5 and 6. For, the, for this whole nation, the writing's sort of on the wall, where they know that I think if they are honest with themselves, they know that they're not going to make it. The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, you know, um, about 20 years or so ago. They're destroyed. And so there's this huge, monstrous nation, much more powerful. They're just crouching on the border. 
And as they're down there in Judah, they have to know that it's only a matter of time before they're destroyed too. It's like Russia invading Ukraine. Russia took over Crimea in 2014. And for the last, until 2021, what year is 2022 for eight years, Ukraine was just waiting, knowing there's no way to stop it. The Russians are going to invade. And they're just waiting for the hammer to fall because everyone knows it's going to happen. And there's nothing, they're never going to be strong enough to, to defeat them on their own. They're going to lose unless they have some massive help. But they know that they just have to wait for it and it's going to happen. They don't know when. That's what the Israelites are facing in Micah's day. They know the Assyrians are going to invade and destroy everything. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17. And everyone knows that's going to happen. And when, uh, when the Assyrians, but actually the Babylonians later, when, they're finally, when the whole thing is finally destroyed, when they do come, Micah talks about what, what's going to happen, how bad this invasion and destruction is going to be, which is why he's so upset, verses 5 through 7. Every con when it happens, every convention of politeness and family ties, everything is going to be thrown completely upside down. Every time there's a military siege or a terrible war, the worst aspect of people always comes out. In, uh, in the Bible, many times it talks about when there's a terrible military siege, people resorting to cannibalism, killing their own children for food. And that's not just a biblical thing that doesn't happen in real life. That happened in the Second World War in the siege of Leningrad. Children started disappearing from the streets. People were engaging in cannibalism because they were... They were um, they were, the city was, was under siege and was, couldn't get enough supplies in. First animals started disappearing, then little children started disappearing. The Bible talks about this in 2 Kings chapter 6 in Samaria. talks about it in Lamentations 2. It happened in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came. And Josephus talks about it in Jerusalem when the Romans destroyed the city in 70 AD. Whenever a city is under siege, people end up doing the most terrible things to one another. And all those ties of family and love, it all becomes every person for himself. So verse 5, don't trust your neighbor, don't trust a friend, even, even your spouse, you can't trust your spouse. Son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. That's why Micah is so desperately unhappy when he hears this message of everything that's going to happen. And if we heard that, we might think, well, at least I won't be around when that happens, hopefully. Uh, but Micah doesn't know that the Babylonians won't destroy the whole thing for another 120 years. We know looking back, but Micah's very upset because what kind of news is that? It's all very depressing. But he ends in verse 7. And he changes. It's like he's depressed and he's upset and he's telling people how bad it's going to be. And then he sort of stands there and he says, and he says, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Now we get to the point where we're going to breeze pretty quickly because I'll ask a few questions. This is the chance where we can have some interaction if you want. Uh, but um, we can read the scripture on two levels. Uh, we should always read the Christian story in light of the whole thing that we now have. So on the immediate level, there's a lot of promises to the Israelites. 
but on a deeper, on a, on, on a deeper, on a, on a second level, we can see how Christ has done so many of these things because now we have the whole story. Just like watching a movie, you see something happen and you think, okay, but then when the movie's over and you can put what the thing that happened in the frame of the whole movie, you're like, now I understand why that and that and that. It's not that you didn't understand before, but now you really understand. The movie is more complete now. New Testament, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. So the rest of the book is Micah telling himself and telling everyone else why they don't need to wallow in depression and despair, why there is hope. So verse 8, he mentions a bunch of things. So I'm going to ask a few questions to see what you guys, what you guys think about connecting the, um, connecting the levels um, between the immediate thing and what Christ has to do with any of this. He says, it's as though he's talking to the Babylonians who are going to destroy everything. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Who is the ultimate enemy of God's people? Satan. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Who is the one, in light of the whole story, who brings people out of darkness and into light? Christ. Christ is the one who brings us out of darkness and into light. Because I've sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. And what, what does that mean? And how does God plead his people's case? Who pleads his people's case? If you're a believer, who pleads your case before God, before the Father on his throne? Jesus pleads our case. Jesus has entered into the Holy of Holies, holding, as it were, his own blood. You know, in the, this symbolism from the Old Testament, the priest takes the blood from the animal, takes it to the altar, splashes it on the altar, and makes atonement for sins. The book of Hebrews says Jesus takes his own blood into the, the, real, um, the real tabernacle in heaven, so to speak, presents his own blood on the altar, sort of uh, as, a, as a symbolic thing, saying, I have atoned for Tyler's sins. I've atoned for Biff's sins. I've atoned for all those sins. I'm pleading Biff's case, Tyler's case, before you, before the, the altar in heaven. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it. When, when the enemy sees this pleading of a case happening, when the enemy sees God's people being led out of darkness and into light, when the enemy sees his people rising again. My enemy will see it, verse 10, and will be covered with shame. What, how will the enemy of God's people be covered with shame? Verse 10, the end of verse 10, uh, my enemy will see it, will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Why? is this enemy now pictured as a woman who taunts, who taunts God's people. Where in the New Testament do we see pure evil pictured in a symbol as a sinister woman? In Revelation 17, the woman who seduces people to come to her and stay with her, who's, riding the, who's sitting on top of this monstrous beast in Revelation 17, Meaning Satan is fronting this, this, this uh, culture, these values, this shiny thing that allures and attracts and entices, symbolized by the woman, 
There's not an accident that this enemy who's taunting God's people is now pictured as a woman. Why she? Because in Revelation 17, John picks the same thing up and talks about evil being fronted by this pretty woman dressed all nice and fancy who entices people to come to her and give themselves to her. My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she'll be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. What sinister woman from the Old Testament was trampled down into the ground like mire in the streets? Jezebel, sinister woman who tricked people and was thrown down from the tower and was trampled to bits and there was nothing left of her but random, random body pieces scattered in the mud. This is what, how Micah and all this poetry is saying, that's what's going to happen to the Babylonians, the Persians, but really that's what's going to happen to Satan, who's behind all of the attacks on God's people, all of them trampled down, crushed underfoot like mire in the streets. That woman from Revelation 17, jewelry and has the cup and entices people and looks so pretty and so alluring, trampled down in the streets and crushed to bits, just like Jezebel, the arch-evil woman who dolled herself all up to meet Jehu and perhaps was still hoping that maybe she could entice him too. And he wasn't having any of it, and she got what she deserved. Verse 12, in that day, people will come to you, Micah talking to God, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. When the enemy is destroyed, people will stream from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. These two entities on the, on the secondary level, Prophets are like onions. There's a top layer, but then there's a, like a layer underneath. Assyria and Egypt, at the time Micah wrote, sort of personified pure evil. The Babylonians weren't around yet. They would come later. The Assyrians are the evil people, the worst people. And of course, Egypt is where they were held as slaves and it's where they escaped from. So these two cities that symbolize the worst evil ever, even from these places, God says, once the enemy is destroyed, People, he'll save people even from there. He'll rescue people even from the worst. He'll rescue even the worst people. People from Egypt, which is a symbol of slavery and darkness. People from Assyria, which is the worst, most pagan nation in the world in Micah's day. In Habakkuk's day, it was the Babylonians, but we're not in Habakkuk's day. From sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. The earth, verse 13, will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. So you picture like this, like, um, this world streaming to Jerusalem, all of them coming from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, all coming all the way to Jerusalem, abandoning where they were and where they came from, figuratively, and all coming to Jerusalem sort of like as this, almost like this ark of salvation. Everyone's leaving where they're from and pledging themselves to God and streaming to him in his city in the last day. Meaning everyone's going to walk away from what they were and they're going to embrace who they actually are, sons and daughters in Christ in the last days, once the enemy's destroyed. The only time Micah in this chapter records God speaking is in verse 15. God says, 
As in the days when you came up out, when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Just like the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. And that's in response to what Micah asked in verse 14. Micah says, shepherd your people with your staff. This is poetry. So it's like he's talking to God saying, God, shepherd us. Be our shepherd, the flock of your inheritance. Uh, take care of us and sort of help us through all of this stuff that's going to happen. Protect us, shepherd us. And God says, I'll do it. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. And then he talks about, again, Micah talks about the people God is going to save. Look at verse, he talks about how nations will see and be ashamed. They'll be upset. Zechariah 12 talks about people crying as they realize who Jesus is and how they themselves were, would have done the same things the Romans did when they killed him. And they'll stream to the Lord. The way Micah describes the people from all over the world, from Assyria and Egypt, are in verse 17. What's he describe them as in verse 17? All these people that are going to come trembling out of the holes where they're hiding. Snakes! They'll lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They'll come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Micah is saying this to God, saying, uh, I know you're, go you're, going to, you're going to rescue people from all over the world. All over the world. Even the worst people from Assyria and, and Egypt were all the worst people. But you know what he's saying. That the, the people we would consider to be the worst are even them. They'll be rescued. Even though Micah says they're like, they're like snakes hiding in the ground, slithering around like slimy losers. Even them, they'll come trembling out of their dens. You picture like this little snake sticking its head out, flicking its tongue, hissing. You know, even, even them are going to come to the Lord and they'll give him honor and glory. The beauty of the gospel is that we don't know that we're just like those, those critters that are hiding under the rocks. And yet God, rather than leaving us in those dark holes, has devised a plan to rescue us out of a darkness we didn't even know we were in. Because if you're not a Jewish person, you're the snake hiding in the den. I'm the snake hiding in the den. We're, the, we're, we're, we're part of the people who God is going to search out and rescue from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, who are going to call us out of our little holes in the ground where we think we're safe. We're those people. We're those people. So as we read this, realize that he's talking about us. And that's what's so precious about the gospel is the Christian story is not do these things and you get your membership card in the mail in 10 days. It's uh, you are like a snake hiding in a den, not loving, not lovely, not, ooh, let me go pet this thing. And yet God came and rescued us from there anyway. He pardons sin and forgives transgressions for everyone who turns to him, verse 18. It says he delights to show mercy. He you know, it takes us effort to show mercy. We do sermons and we're like, Lord, help me to be merciful and kind. God just is kind. It takes us effort and even then we're usually not very good at it. 
Verse 19, you'll have compassion on us. You'll listen to this, uh, how he describes it. You'll tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Hurl them all. Just as, just as Jesus crushes Satan underfoot, our sins will be treaded underfoot by Jesus, essentially. And all of our iniquities will be hurled into the depths of the sea. What other language could God get across to say, if you belong to Jesus, all of the sins that you have and do commit, they're hurled into the depths of the sea. Because he knows we're never going to reform ourselves. He has to reform us from the inside out. And that starts with placing faith in Jesus, being justified from the catechism question, and then sanctified as he changes us and molds us and grows us. You will be faithful to Jacob, end of our chapter, and show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Two levels. One level, he's making a very important promise to Israel, to the nation of Israel that, he talks, that Paul talks about in Romans 9 to 11. But on another level, anyone who has the faith of Abraham is a child of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, Romans 4. Anyone who has the faith of Abraham is an heir of God according to that promise he made to Abraham a long, long time ago. So back to the hedge. Uh, hedge. Oh, missed it. Hedge. This is a hedge. Locks you into a bad path. In order to get out of the path, you're going to have to sort of crush your way through the hedge somehow. You're just going to keep going where it wants you to go. Uh, Judah is locked onto a path that leads to damn individual and national damnation. The Babylonians are the tool God's going to use to break the hedge down and just start over. Just break it down. Um, sent into exile, brought back, prepared for the Messiah to come. And it's painful. That's why Mike is so upset. It's painful to break down the hedges in your life, to break through everything, to break apart even the relationships we thought were the most sacred, the safest, the closest to our heart. Because when you break down those hedges, a lot of things have to change in your life. So here's the question to, that we need to think about this morning as we, as we wrap up. Why did Jesus quote that passage? I've come to bring son against, uh, son against father, daughter against mother, son-in-law against brother. Why did Jesus quote that passage? Do not suppose, he said, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn Quoting Micah, man against father, daughter against mother, etc., etc. Why did Jesus quote that verse? Because we, in individual, keep us away from God. In order to, in order to stop being on this path, we, there she is, we have to break out of the hedge. The gospel, that's why Jesus quoted the passage. The gospel is the tool to break down those hedges, the world, the flesh, the devil, so we can get out of captivity and go into a new reality and get on the right path. Judah, those hedges, the rulers, the elites, the judges, every, everything in society needs to be wiped out so they can get on the right path. For us, Jesus said, I've come not to bring peace but a sword. Why? Because if you believe in me, all those hedges have to be broken down and realigned and resorted the right way. And that's sometimes not going to be very fun. Father against mother, brother against 
uh, brother against uh, brother, daughter against her mother. Jesus's point is when those he- when he bre- if you believe in the gospel and those hedges are broken down so you can get on the right path, there's a whole lot of things that are going to be pulling you back to this path because that's where everyone else is. So Jesus's point about I've come not to bring peace but a sword is that it's painful to break through those hedges to the other side. To break apart, if necessary, even the very relationships we thought were the most sacred, the safest, the closest to our hearts. The gospel is about an allegiance shift, a loyalty oath, a transfer of love from ourself to Jesus by the power of the Spirit. This is an excerpt from the current oath of, oath of allegiance someone has to give when they become an American citizen. And the same concept applies to the gospel. The part there says, I declare, etc., that I renounce all allegiance and fidelity to wherever it is I came from. I don't belong to Turkmenistan. I pledge to America now. That's what happens when we believe in the gospel. We absolutely, entirely renounce all allegiance and fidelity, faithfulness, to ourselves, to anything else, and God is now our king. Jesus is now our king. We take an oath of allegiance, as it were, when we believe the gospel. We may not get that if we're young or when we first do it, but as we grow in the Christian life, we realize that's what it means. Those things that Jesus says, that's what it means. That's why after he quoted Micah, he said in Matthew 10, 39, Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So what's all this have to do with Micah? All these promises of restoration, of safety, of rescue, nations turning to God, snakes climbing out of dens and coming to God, of uh, all of that stuff, uh, all of it finds their yes in Jesus. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. In the overthrow of that sinister woman from Revelation 17 and the culture and the values and the system that she fronts. In the defeat in Revelation 19 of the Antichrist and his influence on the culture that he's fronting and getting everyone to buy into. In the new and better tomorrow in the new heavens and the new earth where we can all be with the Lord forever if we've pledged allegiance to him. But first... God has to break us out of that hedgerow, or we're just going to keep going. And we're going the wrong way. He has to break through the hedgerows of maybe family, maybe selfishness, idolatry, or anything else that locks us into this path that leads us further and further away from him. And we can live for tomorrow, to go back to, you know, what's Micah's problem? Why is he so upset? We can live for tomorrow because we trust God's promises today because we have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that seems like it's not very revolutionary, if you, especially if you've been a Christian and you've, you've heard this before. But that's what Micah, in Micah chapter 7, verse 7, when he takes a deep breath after complaining and talking about how awful it is, he says, And then verse 7, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. If you're a Christian, our God will hear you too. And his advice is good advice. Verses 8 to the end are a snapshot of 
the better tomorrow that's coming and what it's going to look like. And if you belong to God through faith in Jesus by the power of the Spirit, that's your future too. And as you wonder, how can I maintain composure or make it or have hope when the promises from Revelation seem like distant scraps in the messiness of right now, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, whatever it is, Micah's advice is good. Watch in hope for the Lord. Wait for God, your Savior. Your God will hear you. And we have his promise that he has a plan and things will be fixed. In the meantime, he's got to break down the hedges, bring more people into his family, and lead all of us into the path he wants us to go. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to be people who trust in you. Help us to have hope in you and your promises as we deal with the messiness of real life and the real world as we lead our real lives. Help us not to see the Bible as a book full of stories from dead people, but as the living message you've given to us to encourage us, to comfort us, to instruct us in righteousness, to rebuke us, and to give us hope. Help us to have Micah's hope, and I pray that we can be diligent to pray for one person in our life this week, this month, every day, and pray for the person's salvation and for opportunities to be a witness in that area. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.